Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Dr. Franklin C. Annis holds a doctorate in education from North Central University. For almost a decade, he has been researching Army education theory concerning the Army Leader Development Model, ALDM. He is conducting research on improving the concept of Army self-development through improving the definition and suggesting practical self-development techniques. Now, Franklin doesn't just talk about it. He actually walks about it. He is a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom and runs the Evolving Warfighter YouTube channel. I've had the honor of being on his show. And when I say he walks about it, he also rucks. This is the man who truly embodies this octanon verbal mentality. I also had the honor of learning from him and sharing the stage with him at Stoicon X this year. So thank you so much for being on here today. I know that you have a lot going on. I appreciate you. And uh, I know that you need to get something out of the way at the very beginning here. Well, I, I definitely appreciate the chance to, to show up and talk on your podcast. So I am a military professional and I have 15 years of service in the uniform. And with that, to keep me out of trouble, I have to say that nothing I'll, I'll say here is official opinion in any way. So this is all my personal commentary. But I look forward to having a great discussion with you. No, it's going to be fantastic. And like you said, it's nice for people to understand that this is your voice and we serve a greater good with what we do as a service. But at the same time, as an individual, it's nice to be able to kind of talk about your experiences and what's important for the way that you're molding everything. With the evolving warfighter, can you tell us a little bit about what actually prompted that from you and how your journey began into this, not just the philosophy of stoicism, but this ideal that you, this ethos that you live by? Yes. So... I guess it was always kind of my personal interest to continue my studies. And I always wanted, even when I was a kid, to become a doctor. So I had always continued my education. And unlike most other doctors that actually go out and get degrees, get specific jobs, I've kind of just explored things that I've been interested in. And along the way in my military career, I had the chance to be an ROTC instructor. And along the way, teaching ROTC, I found out that like if a student or a cadet asked me for self-development techniques or suggestions, I realized that I didn't have them or I just defaulted back to kind of three standard things. And then of those three things, maybe, you know, two of those three weren't actually self-development. And that kind of sparked the process of when I was going through my doctorate and we're working on a dissertation, the idea came up of, hey, I have this great idea. I'm going to find all these colonels that teach ROTC. I'm going to give them a survey, ask them all about Army self-development. They're going to give me all these answers. It's going to be super easy. I'm going to throw it in a book, publish the book. I'll make tons of money off of it. And uh, <laughs> The Tim Ferriss approach. I, yeah. I like that. But unfortunately, through my studies, what I found was that even our, our senior leaders, the battalion commanders at our ROTC, had a really difficulty understanding the concept of self-development 
And the suggestions they gave were often not actually self-directed learning. So it really opened up the problem to say, hey, we really need to get some time invested on how to teach our soldiers to embody that warrior tradition of that kind of warrior poet. So, you know, you go through that really hard basic training or you go through that Marine Corps boot camp. We ask you for total obedience. But when you walk out of that, we want you to assume a different mindset, always be constantly growing, constantly studying. We shouldn't have to tell you to be reading. It should just kind of be a passion and we want you to follow your own interests. So coming out of this doctoral dissertation kind of was a, I shouldn't say disappointing, but lessons learned that, hey, I didn't produce what I thought I'd produce out of the study. So I wrote it up. Obviously, I graduated with my doctorate degree. I tried to get it published in a Canadian military journal. And I kind of focused on such a small subject that there's almost, well, at the time, there's really no other scholar out there studying military self-development. So trying to get peer-reviewed was almost impossible because no one had my education or training, so they couldn't find a peer to review it. So first, I got turned down by a private journal. I rewrote the journal and submitted it to the Command and Staff College in Lovingworth, thinking, hey, they'll publish it. And what happened is they said, hey, this is a great article. It doesn't fit the scope of our journal. We want you to send it to the Army War College. I sent it to the Army War College. I had to totally reformat it because every journal wants a different formatting. They held it for close to a year before they said, hey, this is a really great article. It doesn't fit the scope of our journal. Please send it to the Command and Staff College. And it was really at that point, you know, almost two years after my dissertation that I realized, hey, if I don't actually start talking or getting the word out to soldiers, then it's going to just be lost or buried in some, you know, archive somewhere behind a paywall. And that's really what started the passion of saying, hey, I have some some approaches to what self-development or self-directed learning would be. Why don't I just start making little YouTube videos out there and try to gain some steam? And then that further led into, well, interviews and the philosophy and to all sorts of things and uh, really being published around the globe by this point in the various different topics. Yeah. I was speaking to uh, William Branham. He's a former Navy SEAL sniper. He was on the teams for 26 years. And he was making comments similar to this idea that it doesn't really do any good to have this knowledge if we can't give it to people in a way that they're sort of meeting them where they are. So you were joking. Well, you weren't joking, but you were talking about how as soldiers, we should continue to read. And that's absolutely true. But Again, if you're a soldier, if you're preparing to deploy, you're probably fatigued. You're probably a lot going on. So you may want to read, but you may not do it. Or as you said, there's so much information overload with these ideas of what you should be reading. You know, should I be reading Stoic philosophy? Should I be reading about Gates of Fire? Should I read about Thermopylae? Should I read about modern warriors? Should I mean, so when William Brennan was speaking, he was saying, kind of as you and I were speaking before, we stand on the shoulders of giants because what was going on in 1776 in this country, the need to even get a formation of guys, right? Hey, you guys go over here. If we don't have them in a formation, if we can't march them, then they're just kind of meandering like we're herding cats. If you don't do a simple layout and say, do you guys all have weapons? I have weapons. I don't have powder. I have powder. I don't have ammo. I don't have food. I don't have shoes. Again, these things that it has to be sort of ritualized to be able to understand, okay, this first battalion, they are all ready to go. They have food, they have water, they have provisions, they can march, they have marching orders. So as you're talking about these colonels, these battalion commanders, even at that level with their experience, sometimes they're so busy either trying to 
I don't want to say putting out fires, but they have a mission. There's commander's intent and then there's what's going on. So there's a lot of wiggle room in there and they expect it to be pushed down to the rest of the leadership or the NCOs. But even within those confines, they have a lot going on. They're trying to keep a lot of things together. So in between there, there's a lot of things that get lost in the cracks, so to speak. Yes. And I think that's really the challenge for military leaderships in general is understanding balance. And one of the big things for military is actually having to carve out time or allowance for soldiers to explore their own interests. And it seems counterproductive, but it's actually it's actually been shown like if you allow soldiers to direct their own learning, they're going to go out and do it because it's enjoyable for them to find something they're motivated for you'll have trouble actually stopping them from going out and learning more if you trust them or allow them to explore on their own. And we get in this really bad situation. I think in modern academia, we're we're really highly based on credentials. So you've ramped up for a deployment. You know, there's a certain number of tests that you have to go through. And some of it's ridiculous. Like, hey, you have to dial a telephone, but you have to be in full body armor to meet the credentialing required to prove that you could string a telephone wire and call a through a telephone before you head out to combat. So a lot of that is just, I don't know, just really burdensome credentialism. So we have this really bad habit of just crushing soldiers and writing out everything that they need to know, whether it's in training courses or validation requirements, that they have to do everything literally by a checklist, by a book. But one of the things about education is uh, there's a great educational theorist called Malcolm Knowles and kind of 1960s, 1970s era, it really looked into kind of motivation or how to connect with adult learners. And it was more about, say you came to me and said, hey, I really I want to learn how to be a better shooter. So I would say, okay, I understand what we're going to do or unit's going to do. So you need to be able to, whatever, turn on your red dot. You need to be able to engage targets from this distance because this is kind of where we think we're going to fight with our weapons. But then I'm going to say, we're going to design a course of fire, but I'm going to ask you like, hey, you know, what's really interesting about shooting for you? And you might say, well, one day I dream about being a sniper. So how I train you how to shoot an AR or, you know, an M16, if you have, you know, the hopes and dreams of becoming a sniper would be highly different if you said, hey, whatever, I like to go hunting back home and I shoot squirrel because it's a different approach. So it's understanding this will meet my basic requirements. It will teach the skills that I need my soldiers to know. But if one soldier focuses on firing super fast and highly accurate at close range, that's great. And if one soldier wants to focus on, hey, I want to I want to stretch my M16 out to 600 yards and do impossible shots that no one else does, that's great too. And having those variety of individuals doesn't actually harm anybody if you allow people kind of flexibility in divining their own educational networks. And it really works for any topic at all. And that goes into like courses as well. I think that we could do a lot better job in the military and society in general if we allow people to use their own interests to shape their own education. more. And uh, I think that our current approach to education just really sucks the soul out of learning. So you hate the experience of learning so much that by the time you walk out of college, you're like, I'm never going back. That's it. I'd never want to read again. And you find a lot of Americans that don't read post-college just because it's been made such a miserable experience versus saying, hey, we're going to give you a selection of books to read instead of just dictating one. We're going to allow you to come back and bring back information of what did you learn from this book instead of dictating to you what you should have learned from the book, that type of thing. 
Yeah, and the autonomy is key, right? As you said, it's exactly what happened with me when I showed autonomy with researching or reading or again, even shooting. When they saw that I was excited about shooting or that I could slide my weapon or I could help this guy over here get a better sight picture, all of a sudden I stand out. All of a sudden, whenever squad designated marksman school comes up, they're pushing me that direction and they're saying, go down here with the recon guys, work on this. And now you get that experience. Now you're using the, the larger calibers. You get to understand better field craft, all those things. So it's powerful. And even then with the reading component, much like you said, I've studied lots of different philosophies, you know, from an academic standpoint and then without it. And even then reading about stoicism or Buddhism or Taoism in a classroom and having a teacher who is essentially sort of just dictating to you, this is what's in the syllabi. This is what I require you to understand. This is just one of many things that they're teaching. They may not even like it, appreciate it, believe in it. And if they're teaching it well, you won't be able to tell the difference. But sometimes you can. And then so if you're enjoying something and all of a sudden they're coming at you from a different angle and trying to explain to you, this is not what it means. Well, there's a million different interpretations of it, as, as Marcus Aurelius would say, right? So it's about understanding this is opinion. This is not fact. But if I want to get that grade, I remember that being told to me many times by my professors. Like, I don't care what your interpretation is. If you want to get the A on the test or if you want to pass the test, you better to tell me dates, times, places, events, significance, et cetera. It kind of is sort of soul sucking in some ways, right? Takes the, the beauty or the fun out of it, as it were. Yes. Well, and it's really interesting. So I could say the most easiest way to tell if you are learning, if you're in an educational process or a credentialing process, is the question, one question. So right now, I could either offer you a Harvard education so you could attend every class but not get a diploma, or would you rather have a Harvard diploma and never attend any classes? Which one would you pick? Oh, the second one all day. Yeah. So that obviously becomes credentialism. So if you're doing it simply because of the grade, you have thrown education way outside the window. Now, you know, as an educator, I can tell you, yes, you have to test competency and that students are learning, but it should be more valuable what you're getting out of the classroom than the paper at the end of the course. Yeah, absolutely. And we both spoke at StoicCon X Military this year. It's a virtual event. And we had a lot of fantastic speakers there. Donald Robertson is amazing. Obviously, Ryan Holiday was the keynote speaker. Nancy Sherman, all these incredible people, retired Lieutenant Colonel, Ranger Battalion, JC Glick. I mean, great people, right? And what we found is, as we're all speaking, it seems like Stoicism kind of was the default philosophy simply because I've had a lot of people that don't even realize it, but that Stoic idea kind of comes into play in any profession where there are high stakes, where there's pressure, where you have to be able to have this ability to focus and the great thing about stoicism is it has a lot of, you know, it has four virtues. It has a lot of tenets. It has a lot of things that you can almost like this drop down menu that you can refer to in the heat of battle. So again, this idea of embracing the suck and it is what it is and controlling what's controllable and letting go of the other stuff because the enemy always gets the vote. Again, on paper, every football play works on paper, but we don't make a touchdown every single time. So. Can you explain to us sort of how that's interrelated with what you're doing and kind of what your initial exposure to it was and how you're continuing to evolve with it, with the evolving warfighter? So I guess I should say that the first time I was introduced to Stoicism was in high school, and I didn't really understand it to any significant degree. I was fortunate enough that my father paid to send me to a private Catholic high school, so Creighton Prep, which I really 
he counts as one of the better investments of his life because I paid for the rest of it, my education myself. But I knew enough that when I was deploying to Iraq that I packed the Marcus Aurelius's meditations because I need it. And um, I think I didn't understand it even in the construct of trying to read it before Iraq, going through experiences. I really came back into philosophy post my deployment because I had a really rough period of my life and it was really Emerson, Thoreau, American transcendentalists that really helped me kind of refocus my thoughts around philosophy, how I framed life to really recover from some of the bad experiences I had downrange and then the kind of catastrophic events that are very common among soldiers. So unfortunately, I got divorced, you know, custody issues with two little boys, you know, debt over your eyeballs. So really rough period of time. And that really got me thinking back into philosophy. And really, through my own military professions, I kept coming back and hitting on philosophy, whether it was a American transcendentalist movement, kind of the universal Unitarian church really was kind of super supportive of the abolition movement and uh, New England. So in a lot of ways, those individuals helped spark and push the conflict to really make America live up to the ideas in the Constitution. They helped spark the American Civil War, including a, a great military leader called Charles Wentworth Higginson. He was a Unitarian minister, and he would go on to actually fund John Brown. He was one of six guys who funded John Brown. And somehow, and I'm going to really have to one day study into it, somehow when everybody else got pulled in front of Congress, or everybody, the other five fled, I guess. <laughs> but when Congress was trying to figure out how John Brown was going to do his terrorism, he didn't get called in. So he didn't get punished, which is quite an interesting fact. So I'm going to have to figure out why he wasn't touched. But during the war, he commanded the first regiment of freed African-Americans. And he captures a whole bunch of their history and a whole bunch of constructs in the a book called The Army Life in a Black Regiment. So I ran across the book. Absolutely love it. He lays out a kind of approach, equal opportunity that you could use today where it's, you don't focus on the guy's skin. You focus on, can they be a soldier? And if they are a soldier, you judge them as a soldier. And that construct really should be the way we're applying things. And kind of moving on down the road, during my doctoral studies, I got introduced to a guy named Captain Alden Partridge who was a, a great American educational theorist, probably the most influential American educational theorist that no one hears of. And the reason why you don't hear him is because he was a third superintendent of West Point, but eventually he would go on to start a whole bunch of private military schools and he would actively fight to try to close down West Point. So if you're hmm. uh, a West Point historian, you write him out of history or you downplay his achievements. But he is the one that I copy my marching practices after, but he introduced a lot of neo-Stoic traditions into the U.S. Army education system that have remained. But this guy would recommend once a quarter going out and walking between somewhere between 30 and 80 miles in a day. And you do that several days in a row. And he was an engineer, so he would actually climb the mountains in New England and try to calculate their elevation using a barometer and his little sexton. And just a remarkable scholar. And when I was first introduced to him in my doctoral studies, I didn't understand kind of the deeper philosophical connections that we were bringing into the military. But it wasn't until 
I did an interview with a great military historian, Dr. Bruce Gudmundson, Marine, and he was talking about the great Greek warrior Xenophon mm. and how in history he you know, was part of a mercenary army that was going to overthrow Persia. They lost the war. They lost their claim. All of a sudden, you have 10,000 infantrymen stuck in the middle of Persia, no cavalry, little hope of escaping. Xenophon at the time was just a foot soldier, something like 30 years old, becomes a general, has to figure out how to move 10,000 soldiers hundreds of miles out of a foreign territory with no support and, you know, no cavalry support. And a great, amazing story. I highly encourage the audience to take a look at it. Talk about great speeches from military leaders. I think that's probably one of the most memorable in terms of speeches. So the book is called The Anabasis. And it was really from that conversation that I really started studying very seriously the connection. Because out of Dr. Gudmundson saying this, I realized that Xenophon was inside Partridge's curriculum. So I started going back to these old, very old, 200-year-old army curriculum, army officer curriculum, and saying, hey, what's in here? And started reading all this. And it's like, hey, this is a direct line of philosophy that we've abandoned. We don't understand these constructs. So, you know, from the Spartans, Xenophon writing about the constitution of Laconia or Sparta, all the way through kind of the Neo-Stoics. And you brought up how Stoicism is really connected to kind of the military. Um, the Neo-Stoics were a movement at the end of the Dark Age, uh, around the 16th century, kind of around the same period that we invented firearms. And at that point, Europe needed standing armies because it takes a lifetime to train a, a warrior, like a bowman, but it only takes two years to train a musketeer or a rifleman. So you could turn out soldiers a lot faster. So having standing armies were much more important. So at the time, there was a philosopher called Justice Lipsius. He took the works of Seneca and adapted Seneca to Christian theology. So he expanded on the seven Stoic virtues and added the three Christian virtues primarily in there. So you have things like wisdom, moderation, courage, justice from Stoicism, but you have faith, hope, and love brought in from Christianity. And that is the beginning of the modern era or the modern state. So what we think of now as what America formed out of for the thoughts are really coming from these philosophical traditions that Neo-Stoicism helped go back in all the libraries of Europe and save the Stoics texts, retranslate them, reinterpret them. And then you have the next generation of scholars that came in were the Enlightenment scholars. So you had John Locke. Mm -hmm. So John Locke was pulling from the Neo-Stoics, and you get, well, the natural rights are really Stoic ideas retranslated in the modern era. And those get carried forward. And I think I would assert that it goes through a transition once again with the Universalist Church in the United States. And you get the what's called the Transcendentalist Movement. And that is kind of a, a very difficult philosophy to take a look at because it's actually several different philosophical traditions all kind of crammed together. So you have individualists, collectivists, they're kind of all arguing and fighting with each other. But I would say the Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson tradition that came out of that was kind of the highest philosophy that America had. And it was a what you could argue is a Christian-based, but it was a secular Christian notion. So it required no belief in Christianity, but all you had to do is believe primarily in those seven virtues, as I defined earlier. You could whatever practice whatever religion you wanted. 
And kind of the American dream was to be kind of left alone and build and construct and do great things. It wasn't ever the house and the white picket fence that was something sold in the whatever 1950s. But it's remarkable to see this kind of evolution of philosophy. And I love exploring it because like here I am 15 years or three quarters into my military service. And one of the great military philosophers that they give every field grade leader that has to read is, is Carl von Klautzwitz, the great Prussian. Well, I can read Klautzwitz and then try to apply him, but Klautzwitz actually frames his philosophy, his military philosophy inside the Neo-Soic tradition. So if I don't understand kind of the underlying assumption that Klautzwitz is operating in, if I try to transplant or steal lines and phrases of Klautzwitz and throw them down in Iraq and wonder why Klautzwitz isn't working in Iraq, it's because I'm not accounting for these larger philosophical traditions. And the further I go, the more I realize we really need to return to the philosophy, understand those underlying assumptions and constructs. And a lot of the kind of public debate that's happening now are really a clashing of philosophies that cannot be consolidated against each other. You can't find a median because they are polar opposites on how they wish to frame the world. Yeah, it's hard to have reconciliation where fundamentally they're just not going to work, which, like you said, so now we're at this impasse, this quandary, so what do we do? Do we either sit down and continue to butt heads, which doesn't really help us get any closer to a solution, or whenever I was on your show, we were talking about these overarching truths, these higher reaching ideals. So in martial arts, if you look at masters of all systems, you're going to see a lot of similarities in there about efficiency, about timing, about being able to read your opponent. So while the splitting the hairs and the semantics of what the technique is, these overarching ideas of understanding combat are key. So like you were saying, perhaps instead of sitting here trying to say, I'm right and you're wrong, or I'm right and you're wrong, let's just look at the things that are working. Let's look at these areas where there is a overlap so that we can create a blend. Again, because especially if you're in the heat of combat, you don't have the luxury of being philosophical. You must have something that works right now. And just like to your point, speaking to a soldier, you know, maybe he may not understand that. But if you're doing a 80 mile ruck march and it's like, you can bitch and run all you want, but we're just still going to go. So you can either make this harder than it needs to be by sitting here resistant at the entire time and saying, this sucks. I don't want to do this. Or you can say it is what it is, embrace the suck, versus the gift, whatever you want to call it. But the idea is we're going to get there. So how do you want to apply that? And how is this more easily, make it more readily available to that soldier to serve him, to help him win? Yeah, and there's a great little short pamphlet that was written by Captain Alton Partridge. And you can find it if you go to Google Books and Google Lecture on Education. Really short, fast read. Talks about what education should be. But part of that, includes fitness. So he was the first scholar uh, in the 1820s to talk about, hey, you need to have physical fitness inside your life or inside academia. And he was like 40 years ahead of his time. Him and then Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, Mm -hmm. kind of really close contemporaries about recognizing the importance of fitness inside education. But he also talked about you need to experience hardship so you can bear fatigue well. And that was one of the main drivers behind his great walking expeditions. And for the last couple of years, once a quarter, I go out and I try to do a a long march to kind of push my limits. And since I had previously kind of gone through marathon length marches with 
the Bataan Memorial Death March a couple times. Uh, my marches typically range somewhere between 40 and I've gone all the way up to 62 miles in a day so far. Wow. But it's really interesting where, you know, fatigue is kind of like courage. Like everyone says like, hey, I want to be brave. And then the question is, well, are you practicing being brave? And people don't understand that it's got to be something that you do kind of on a daily basis. Like you build bravery. It's not something that, you know, that moment that you really need bravery. You can't just pull it out of the hat. It's got to be something that you practice. But bearing fatigue is as well. So going out and voluntarily engaging in fatigue when you don't, you're not in the crisis. So say I go walk, and I found for some reason for me it's about mile 35. I go out and ruck march mile 35. My life is absolutely miserable starting there. It's like everything hurts. Like it's pain at that point, and it's. It's not just pain. It's at mile 35 knowing, hey, I'm going to try to make it to mile 63. So it's at least 10 more hours of pain. But something really interesting happens. If you practice that, I can get to a point where it's almost like a Zen-like phase. Like in that misery, I recall every good thought I think about my family. So whether it's the pride I have in my sons or how much I enjoy my little toddler girls, how much I love my wife. And it's such a weird experience that here you are absolutely fatigued. All you want to do is quit. But I can have a more enjoyable conversation in my own mind about my life in that moment than ever before. And the great thing about kind of introducing yourself to those practices is, you know, if my boss called me up right now and said, hey, we need you to go to this place and we need these reports and whatever, 9-11 happens again. Hey, it will be three days before you go to bed again, but you need to control the situation. And it's like, okay, well, it's not as hard as rucking 62 miles. So I know I can do this. I have a reference before I get into the emergency that explains my capacity. So I don't doubt myself versus being in a situation that is truly overwhelming, not knowing if you'll make the next step. And like you said, we have to choose those courageous decisions and then act out on them every single day. I call them micro-adversities, but it's very much like what we've been talking about for philosophers centuries past, this idea of, you know, oh, what if I fasted today? Would my life end? No. What if I slept on the cold ground instead of in a bed today? Is this what I so feared? All these ideas of that adversity scale of you knowing you can walk 63 miles. How heavy is your rut? So it depends on how far I'm going, but it's typically around 45 pounds when I, I head out. Right. And then that thing feels heavier every single step. So knowing that you can go that far with that much weight on your back, you understand that by comparison, if that's your 10 of adversity scale, and then like you said, you understand, hey, I get to be indoors, sitting down, drinking coffee if I have to work on this for the next 72 hours. It's much more palatable as opposed to, because you don't want to wait until you're actually in the face of it to wonder. Again, just with the military, that's what they always told us. They said, listen, of all the things in the in the military that you can control, you can control your physicality, and hopefully that helps you control your thoughts in the process. So again, if I'm dropped up out of the jump out of a C-130 and I have to march 20 clicks to get to the target, and now I have to be battle effective once I get there, I don't want to wonder, man, I wonder if I can get there. No, you should already be thinking to yourself, this is going to be our SOP. This is what our protocol is. This is the mission. I'm on first squad. We're going to be the first at the door. I should be thinking like that as opposed to going, God, how much further is it? Oh, can I get there? And again. In the military, what else, right? Gates of fire, whenever Stephen Pressel talks about this idea of we don't necessarily fight. We fight for our country when we get there, when we enter, but we fight for our fellow man. We fight for our brothers. We fight for this ideal once we're on boots on the ground. So we have to actually be in that place where 
I don't want to let you down. I want to let the guy next to me down. If I'm dehydrated, if I didn't bring enough ammo, if I don't have my sensitive items, that may be the difference between not only success and failure, but life or death. So if you don't have motivation, then that will be something that can push you. And they always say that it's amazing what we can accomplish when we give ourselves enough time and we have no other choice. Yeah, we can do a lot. So you pushing yourself like that is is imperative and it's a skill set that and even then the simplicity of it, right? Like you said, if you wrote something about it and you wrote this article, all that stuff would be very valuable. But until that person has been to a place where they're bleeding through their boots, they can't even feel their shoulders, everything is numb, it hurts, it's not going to have the same gravitas. Yes. Yeah. So it's so important. And that's why we were talking before we hit record, you're writing the writing of Donald Robertson, you know, obviously Ryan Holiday kind of reigniting stoicism. The reason why those authors and, and yourself stand out is because you were actually living it. And I myself, and I think you heard me on Stoic.com where I was just like, stop reading a quote and being excited about that and then not using it. Stop saying you're going to do this stuff. You know, Epictetus says, don't tell me your philosophy, embody it. Like we have to live this. And that's why philosophy truly is. It's not just a soundbite. It's not just a quote on Instagram. It's not just a tweet. It's literally taking that thing. And then when you want to give up saying to yourself, okay, is this what I so feared? The way that you conduct yourself in the face of adversity is an indication of everything else that you will do in your life. So if you give up at the first sign of adversity, that means if you have to have a difficult conversation with a coworker, if you have to fire somebody, if you have to talk to your co-founder, if you have to talk to your spouse or your children, if you don't have courage, you're going to compromise. You're going to falter. And now you're not going to say what needs to be said. You're not going to do what needs to be done. And frankly, you're not going to call that person on their bullshit or whatever it is in that moment when they need it the most, frankly. There's an interesting study, and I really wish I would have saved it. I'm going to have to go back and find it. But uh, there are some scientists testing rats to see if they put them in cylinders filled with water, what was the average time it took a rat to drown? And I believe the report was something like 15 minutes on average a rat would drown in that period. However, the scientists also took a bunch of rats, let them almost drown, pull them out of the water, them out, yep. dry them off, clean them up, and then put them back in the water. And then... They measured how long the rat would swim after that. And they found on average, it was well over two days that the rats would swim. So it's yep. quite remarkable at first blush, how quick we are to give up versus what we're truly capable of. And I think one of the best things I like about doing this long march, and it's not to say that I'm a, a masochist, but you really have to get used to being uncomfortable. And, you know, whether it's basic training or boot camp, uh, Marine Corps crucible event, those are really meant to get you psychologically uncomfortable through the physical training aspect. Mm -hmm. And if you learn how to kind of live in that space, you can freaking do anything. But a lot of people are so fearful of that little tiny discomfort. They're not willing to kind of push themselves. Now, I'm not saying go out there and march until your feet bleed and then you're going to have to spend four months doing whatever in a wheelchair to get you know, there are limits, like don't be stupid. Of course. When I do long marches, I get blisters, but hey, even a couple marches ago, if my blisters are bleeding, I'm stopping. If it's one or two layers of skin, I'll deal with because it will heal within, you know, five or six days. If it's if it's bleeding, then that's several weeks of me not being able to march. So I'm not going to compromise my training. So a lot of it's learning kind of how how you can safely push your body to kind of deal with the pre-discomfort phase. Like what is uncomfortable that's not hurting me versus, hey, this is way past what I should be doing. And then as someone who's been training for the military around the military for over a couple of decades, I can say, 
a lot of times I still cross that line and like do things that I shouldn't be doing. I make stupid mistakes out there training. You know, it's not a reason not to go try. Well, that's it. I mean, if we don't even know where the limit is, then we're not really pushing ourselves. If we're accomplishing we do easily, then we're not demanding enough of ourselves in the process. And then this understanding of, as you were saying, these crucible type events or this idea of very few of us have the discipline to be able to be in an intellectual space of discomfort from an intellectual standpoint and stay there. But that is within the confines of our physical bodies. So if I'm in adversity, I have no other choice other than to be present. Yes. I, I have to be. Now I can go to that Zen place like you were talking about where I'm in a flow state almost or I'm in the zone where the discomfort is here. But I've what have I done? I've acclimated to it. I've adapted to it to a certain extent. And now I'm like, okay, I was here. And already now by mile 35, I've clicked up to here, which gives me the capacity to look down on where I was and say, okay, that mindset, that notion, that belief was at least in this moment, antiquated. And now what am I going to do with this newfound level of determination, understanding that exhaustion is a lot of it is mental, you know, the 40% rule. If we can double that to even 80%, we can still safely demand more from ourselves and allow that additional 20% for adversity, the things that are outside of our control. Before this interview, I traveled and on the way back, my flight was canceled. You know, that's part of it. So what do I do? I can sit there and boo-hoo about it or, you know, I rent a car and it's a long drive. But I still make it happen because that's the priority to me. That's what's important. And if I don't have that extra 20% for the stuff outside of my control, or it could be financial ruin or a family member in a car accident or a cancer diagnosis, whatever it is, there are a lot of things that, again, this preset point that we think, okay, this I'm done. This is all that there is. So if you're to a place physically where you feel like you want to give up and you're almost there, and then if you found out that there was something else that really pushed you, something that truly drove you, It'd be amazing what you could learn about yourself in those moments. So that's why those rock marches are so important, or that's why whatever it is, whether it be meditation or a fast or just demanding yourself to maintain the standard, right? There's a reason why in the military we call them standards. At 10th Mountain, they were like, this is not the standard. This is the bare minimum. Yep. So we expect more from you if you're going to be here. You know, this is the passing grade, but we want you to be like a 280 on your PT test. You know, you should have. A little bit of area to continue to strive for. And if that's the case, then it will always make you endeavor to be worthy of that. That was part one of my interview with Dr. Franklin C. Annis, author, veteran, educator, and host of the Evolving Warfighter Show. You can hear part two of the interview on the next episode of Octa Non Verba, where Dr. Annis returns to explore how the focus on violence and the fundamental culture of the military separates them from the rest of the American culture and the importance of finding common ground as a society today. Dr. Annis also discusses the philosophy of America and why it's so important, especially in today's trying times, how he was able to recover from being homeless, and the advantage of knowing that you are resilient in the face of adversity. Until next time, live a life of actions and not words. Live a life of Octa Non Verba. Thank you for listening to this episode of Octa Non Verba. This message resonates with you. Please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Octa Nonverba Inner Circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.